Hello and welcome to the Medical Humanities Podcast, the official podcast of BMJ's Medical Humanities Journal. We invite you to listen in and join the conversation from academic discussions happening in our journal to interviews with filmmakers and artists and global perspectives on health and medicine from around the world. Stay up to date with public discussions that matter to medicine and to the humanities because life happens at the intersections. Welcome back to the Medical Humanities Podcast. I'm Brandi Scalace, Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here today with Julian Simpson. He's a freelance historian with research interests in the relevance of history to policy, the history of the national health or the national health system, and migration, mental health, and the use of oral history. I'm really excited to have you on today, Julian, particularly uh, as I know we were just talking recently about the role of historians and our sort of responsibilities to connecting to current culture, particularly with the kinds of things that are happening right now in terms of immigration and migration. Yeah, hi. Well, uh, thanks for uh, for having me on. And uh, I'm really delighted to be talking about this because in a way, this is what took me down the uh, road of uh, researching and um, studying history because I ended up uh, in the 2000s working in the refugee sector in Scotland. Uh, and one of the things that I became aware of uh, working for the Scottish Refugee Council uh, as a media person uh, was that there seems to be a lot of uh, resistance to the idea that migration was an established phenomenon. And I found that quite bizarre in a city like Glasgow, which at the time was welcoming quite large numbers of asylum seekers and, and refugees. And people saw this as some sort of alien phenomenon, which I found quite strange in a city with such a strong Irish culture, where people, even after three generations, will still identify as Irish rather than Scottish. And I really came to believe that one of the reasons for this was the way in which we talk about migration in this country. And we don't talk about it as an ongoing phenomenon. We talk about it in terms of social science and in terms of what's happening now. But in terms of history, it's very, very marginal. And I felt that needed to to change. It needed to change because one, because it's interesting, actually, and two, because I think if we don't write these histories, then we do feed into a particular political climate. And unfortunately, in the intervening 15 years or so, I haven't seen any sign that that political climate and that debate on immigration uh, is getting any better or any more rational, to be honest. Right. And of course, I'm coming from the United States context, and we have uh, a whole lot of problems facing us that are similarly connected to um, not having, I think we talked about this idea of the manufacturing of consensus, that there's a kind of media understanding, a kind of really generic understanding that is often not nuanced, not connected to actual historical data. And you end up with these very um, polarized lines about how people feel about things, and they don't see their own role in any of that. Well, yeah, and I, and I think part of the problem is that, uh, I mean, obviously that the media is, uh, is one consideration. But I think part of the problem is certainly, I mean, the situation is different, obviously, in the US, but certainly in the UK, migration history is very, very marginal. And this is true of a number of uh, countries. Uh, and I think that if we don't write these, uh, these histories and we don't in, uh, engage with them, uh, then uh, we're going to feed into to these processes. So I think this is the problem. As academics tend to pinpoint the media as the problem or the mm, uh, you mm -hmm. know, populist movements as, as the problem. They don't see themselves as the problem. And, and I think they are the problem. And people find it very difficult to recognize this. Uh, but they need to recognize that ultimately, if you're writing from a particular 
social uh, position, a particular uh, position in terms of your life experience, uh, and you're ignoring certain aspects of history as a result, which I think is what's happening certainly in, um, in academia in this country, then you are actually feeding uh, the problem and you're feeding certain perceptions of migration if you're not placing it at the center of the national story, which by and large historians don't do in this country. And I think it's, it's certainly an interesting coincidence that uh, those historians who are writing uh, these histories uh, are by and large a very uh, non-diverse uh, bunch. And this has been uh, recognized by the uh, Royal Historical Society itself, which produced a report on this last year, uh, which I think uh, identified the fact that 96% uh, of um, university lecturers, professors uh, in the UK were white. Now, if you add to that a lack of diversity in, in terms of you know, gender, social origin, etc., mm -hmm. then you get a group of people who write particular types of history. I mean, for me, this is not a particularly <laughs> complex notion, but I think there's a, there's a certain amount of resistance to this within the, the profession, and people need to understand that it's not, it's not just the media, it's not just Donald Trump, it's not just uh, Bolsonaro or UKIP. You know, it's actually about the sort of climate that we all create. And I think this has been a problem uh, within scholarly research for a very long time. Uh, but I don't see that many, uh, many signs of it getting any better. You know, I want to I want to take um, I want to take that a little bit further, because I know I myself am actually not um, I'm, I'm not a very not a very traditional academic in the sense that I don't work for a university. I am, in fact, a freelance writer and you are as well. And mm. so I'm wondering, um, is there. Is there a space at all in the academy for creating public histories? And I'm asking this kind of, it's a bit of a leading question because I happen to know that public history books, history books that people, that are for a broad public and that they're, they're well read, do not always count towards tenure or towards REF. And so um, are, we, are we cutting ourselves off in academe? Are we not allowing those spaces? And is, does that mean that those spaces have to be filled um, in other ways? Well, that certainly seems to be the uh, the dominant um, mode. And uh, I mean, you're referring to the manufacturing of consensus within the media. I think there's a manufacturing of consensus within academia as well. Uh, right. And uh, there's a huge amount of pressure to produce a certain type of work. And certainly if you produce something that uh, has vocation to be read by, by more people that maybe can be categorized as, uh, as social history, or you're being explicitly political, because for me, all work is political. It's just a question of whether you make that explicit or not. But clearly, if you start engaging with social issues, political debates, etc., that uh, is perceived in a certain way by the academic establishment, which is not always uh, positive. So clearly, then you, you, have, uh, you have problems in terms of uh, building a career. Certainly, that, that's why I've decided to, to go freelance. I mean, I can't say there aren't spaces because I did spend 10 years in academia. Uh, so clearly, there was a space for me to a certain extent. But I did find it difficult. And I did find that it, it became clear to me at one point that Either I decided to start focusing on different things and uh, faded into the background to a certain extent, or I needed to uh, to move on. And again, I mean, people, I think, have been coming up against these issues for a very long uh, time. Uh, there's a really interesting uh, book from the 1960s, The Dissenting Academy, uh, edited by uh, Theodore Rorschach, where this is all described in, uh, in detail that I think most people would recognize uh, today. Uh, and uh, this book is uh, was published in the 19. 60s. So uh, you know, clearly there's, a, there's an entrenched issue and there is a, a, an issue in terms of being able to do academic work that is recognized as being scholarly, rigorous and, uh, and, and properly researched, but that also speaks to wider concerns. And, and, and I think this is to a certain extent a cultural issue because, I mean, for instance, in, in France, 
this is not really uh, considered to be to be a problem. Uh, you have uh, French historians who uh, who, who write uh, histories that are read by hundreds of hundreds of thousands of people that are very popular, and that doesn't mean they're not seen as as credible um, historians. Uh, but I think that there is there is certainly an issue along those lines in the in the UK, which is the uh, uh, the um, part of academia that I that I know best, and uh, and and I think it's been exacerbated in a way by the corporate corporatization of academia, uh, and also by the fact that funding bodies now have quite stringent criteria for the allocation of funding. So it's not just that you need to explain how you're going to research your project, why it's relevant, how you're going to do it, but you actually need to go through the priorities of the funding bodies uh, and then show how you're going to uh, meet those. So if and then if you if you look at who essentially is is setting these uh, the, these criteria, you find again that you've got a, a certain type of person who tends to be at the at the top in these organisations, and and again you you perceive of problems in a particular way. One of the things I found quite striking when I started researching the role of South Asian doctors in the NHS, National Health Service in the UK, and uh, uh, this group of people was absolutely fundamental to how the system developed. But I, I went down to, to Oxford to meet someone there, Oxford University, and I got spoke, uh, speaking to one of his colleagues who said, oh, you know, really, were there that many Asian doctors? Well, you know, only about 10,000 of them by the late <laughs> uh, But clearly, if you're in a sort of middle class uh, bubble, if you've maybe been to, uh, uh, to a, a public school uh, and uh, if you've uh, inhabited the prosperous parts of the country, uh, these doctors won't necessarily be visible to you. So you perceive mm -hmm. history in a particular way. I mean, if you, one of the reasons I got interested in migration is because I've, I've moved around quite a lot myself. And I've, uh, there's quite a lot of people from different parts of the, of the world and the UK in my family background. So obviously it resonates with you. You're interested in it. You want to research it. If you, and it's interesting. I mean, again, you know, if you look at how social history emerged in this country, uh, it's with the widening of higher education and people uh, accessing a university who traditionally didn't have uh, access uh, to it. If you look at how women's history developed, it's when women got access to higher education, we're in a position to, to write about this. So uh, essentially, it's pretty clear to me that if you cut off access to certain sections of the population, to people have particular outlooks, uh, you, you're going to have an impact on what type of history gets, uh, gets produced. But there's, there's huge resistance to doing uh, anything about this. And I think to a certain extent, it's also about people defending their privileges in a way. It, it's a natural reaction. So to answer your question, I'm not... There is maybe a space, but it's quite a restricted one, and I'm I'm not sure that things are getting are getting any better. I mean, I've decided now to stick with being freelance, but certainly the last academic interview I went for uh, at a university that shall remain nameless, uh, I arrived for my interview, and there are five members of the panel, uh, four uh, white uh, middle class men, aged comfortably over fifty. Uh, one woman who was introduced uh, to me as being from another department, which you know, I don't know clearly, it was maybe some sort of effort to show some vague awareness of the need for diversity. Uh, and then the message at the end was, oh, well, you know, when I got my, my feedback, it was, yes, we were very impressed and it's all very interesting. But we decided to go with someone whose uh, research and teaching is more aligned with what we traditionally do. Yeah, yeah. As well, you know, so these are the, these are the <laughs> dynamics you get into, basically. Right, right. Well, and, you know, I think, too, um, so, of course, Medical Humanities, the journal that uh, the podcast is, is connected with, is we're trying to expand those boundaries as well, um, because I agree that there's been a sort of lack of engagement with social issues is something that's contributing to to foment out there in the world and that um, in the academic circles, we have a tendency in academic journals to publish the same types of articles by the same types of people a lot. And as you try to expand and become more diverse 
you run into types of problems. So for instance, if all of the standards for accepting an article um, are white and Western, then you're going to find that white Western standards dictate who appears in your journal. So we're attempting to um, expand that. And it's not easy. And so I think um, I find it much easier to be more engaged with social issues um, as a freelance person for a lot of the same reasons that there's a wider scope of, uh, well, there's a wider scope of influence and a wider audience too. Yeah, but I think one of the problems as well is the way it's not just about the, the, the content, it's about how people work and it's about their own reactions to work. I mean, I find that d depending on which topic I'm writing about and what I'm saying, you know, people's reaction to my work is very, very different. So some of it is clearly not about the academic content. It's about people's visceral reaction to acknowledging sure. certain issues. So when I started arguing that migrants were architects of the NHS, I got into some very obscure debates about the meaning of the word architect. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and to the point where the first paper I wrote about this actually references uh, a dictionary definition of architect to show that actually you can uh, talk about uh, this group of people in that particular way. And the other thing I, I always found fascinating uh, with uh, academic history, and I suppose it goes for other disciplines as well, but I, I, I suppose I'd argue that it's less relevant in the case of history. And people are fixated on this idea that you, know, you need to start from the literature. And I just think sometimes, no, you need to start from relevant social questions, your own particular experience, which is often a great unsaid, because if you get talking to people, you realize that the reason they research a particular issue is something to do with their, their background, their interests, etc. But Obviously, everyone will keep up this great pretense of, oh, well, you know, these are questions that emerge from the from the literature. Well, generally, they're not. In any case, well, as you said, they, the literature is defined by a very specific group of, of people who've been doing this research. Why do we need to start from, from there? So I think it's actually not just about the content and the presentation. It's actually about ways of working and people being aware of their own prejudices and what they're prepared to uh, acknowledge or not. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, one of the, the catchphrase, I suppose, at Medical Humanities is uh, join the conversation. And we really want people to engage with us and have a conversation with us, partly because we want the humanities to have an impact in the world, to discuss contemporary concerns, to have some sort of um, influence, or at least to have an audience. And I think if you don't talk about contemporary concerns, it's hard to have any sort of impact on them. <laughs> yeah, but it's also the fact that you're going to start asking much more interesting questions. So this is what I really don't understand. Because, you know, you can, for instance, if you want to look at uh, look at mental health, I mean, I, I find it quite surprising that people aren't particularly interested in the ethical issues uh, around uh, euthanasia in the in the Netherlands in connection with uh, with mental health uh, and looking at that from a from a historical perspective I mean I, I attended a, a seminar a couple of years ago where uh, someone with a, a background in I mean again I'll avoid giving too many details to uh, to not make it too personal but you know someone with a background in psychiatry was talking about you know ethical uh, breaches in respect of uh, Nazi Germany and uh, lack of respect for people and so on and I raised the issue of okay but how do you translate that into uh, contemporary concerns, and uh, you know how might we judge this uh, from the vantage point of uh, you know twenty fifteen, uh, say. Uh, and I, I just felt well, this it feels like it, in a way that's considered to be irrelevant, or uh, you know that's not how we um, we approach these issues. And I think if you start approaching them like that and think, well, there's something going on in a contemporary context that is interesting, I can try, maybe let's try and look at this 
uh, in a historical context, see how this developed, what other relevant uh, instances of such approaches are there, and what does that tell us about what we're doing now? I think you you gain a completely different view of the uh, of the present. Uh, so I, I think it's also about looking at uh, looking at issues uh, in that way and not restricting ourselves to what has already been done. Just you know, look at what's happening. What is uh, what what are what are the contemporary issues that are that are of relevance uh, to us, and how as historians can we speak to that? It's not about doing history that's necessarily uh, in a different format. It's not about. It's certainly not about. Uh, being less rigorous or scholarly, and 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 that's one of the things I I, I suppose I'm I'm concerned about is that you know we just say well there's the sort of you know there's the rigorous the the, the scholarly history and then well you know you can do what you want and there's this all of this uh, stuff that's considered a bit you know frillier and, uh, and and gentler and softer and so on you can do a bit of public history or you can do a blog or so on I think actually we we just do proper history but we we have to ask questions that reflect. A range of experiences, because otherwise we just end up reflecting you know, uh, power balances in terms of uh, you know, ethnicity, class, gender, uh, disability. I mean, I spent, as I said, ten years in academia, and I, I do. And one of the things that stayed with me was the the, the fact that the, the, I think on two occasions I saw someone speak at a conference with a visible, right, a visible disability, and I remember being really struck by that because it's incredibly unusual. Now, if that is the case, uh, clearly. There is a problem, and clearly, it has having having an impact on the type of uh, of work that gets done. I mean, again, it's very rare to turn up an ac at an academic conference and hear someone speak with a a working class accent. Uh, and you know, obviously, I, I I could go on. So I, I think it's about trying to try to find ways forward, uh, and about again acknowledging the fact that if uh, academic history does not engage with these issues, it is part of the problem because uh, ultimately it's repeating. Uh, certain forms of uh, of discourse, rather than trying to just deconstruct them. Obviously, that's not a universal phenomenon, but it will tend to be in that direction simply because of the nature of the uh, of the system as it stands. And again, right. Well, know, the, the way the, the, also the way uh, the, the way everything has been corporatized and uh, directed towards targets, etc., means that people become socialized in a particular way, and they they simply become more obedient and uh, less willing to ask questions. Uh, of the established system, and I think that's a fundamental problem as well. Right. Well, you know, as we're as we're leaning towards the end of our chat here, I wonder, could you take a moment to speak to the historians that that are coming up? We've got uh, young people who are who are leaving um, PhD programs in history and who are interested in engaging with these issues in medical history or in other forms of history that touches social issues and social contexts. What kind of uh, what encouragement would you give them? What would you suggest as a way forward for them? And I, I recognize that there's no one answer, but it would be interesting to hear your your thoughts on that. Well, I, I'm not sure I'm the best person to recommend a way forward within <laughs> academia, given that I tried to find a way forward and decided the best uh, approach was to uh, uh, was to move to one side. I, I suppose what I would say is spend some time thinking about what you really want to do. Try not to get sucked into the um, way the system operates, which will tend to direct you towards particular questions, generally of an arcane uh, nature, uh, uh, that uh, don't really disturb anyone in power. Think about your, the wider social environment that you're in, how you'd like to um, affect, uh, have, have an, an impact uh, on that, what sort of changes you'd like to, to bring about. I'm not saying transforming society, but you know, contribute to something. 
uh, and really hold on to, to what matters and then think about whether what matters is doable within academia or whether uh, you need to do it uh, in a slightly different uh, context. And that's certainly what I've, what I've done. I, I tried to make it work within academia. I decided it's not valuable. I decided that I wasn't going to, to change. So I've, um, I've decided to go down a, a different, uh, different road. But I certainly do think it's important uh, for people to, uh, to try and uh, retain uh, an interest uh, in issues that are of, uh, of social relevance. And ultimately, uh, for me, it boils down to what uh, Karl Marx uh, said about uh, you know, uh, interpreting the world uh, or changing it. Uh, and I think interpreting the world is certainly interesting. Uh, but for me, it's really important for us as uh, scholars to also try and change it. Thank you so much for being with us today, Julian. Uh, it's been wonderful having you on, and I hope we can have you on again. It'll be my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Medical Humanities Podcast. Stay in touch by reading the journal or our blog online. Just follow the links in the episode description. We're also on Twitter at medhams underscore BMJ or find us on Facebook. Until next time.